Good morning. Uh, If you're here for the first time, we're so glad you're with us. And for those who are online, we're uh, glad you're with us as well. Um, Today, we're going to be continuing in the book of Titus. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 2. We're going to be hanging out in Titus 2 for a few weeks, uh, looking specifically at God's design for discipleship and mentoring. Uh, And then three weeks from now, uh, out of Titus 2, we'll be thinking about the idea and and what it looks like to be a Christian in the workplace uh, and at school which I hope will be helpful for our students uh, returning and also for those that spend most of their day uh, in the business world. Uh, you know, Titus 2 is going to be it's very practical for us. Uh, it, shows, it shows us how to be a Christian in our mundane, everyday, in our ordinary life, uh, which is a great contrast from last week as we looked at Titus 1 and God's design for church leadership, uh, specifically in the office of pastor and elder. We, at the end of our time, were able to present two elder candidates. Again, this is a big step for us as a church because, as we saw last week, it's one of the many markers of growing in maturity as a body of believers. We're praying that we would be a church that stands the test of time and that can withstand the fiery darts of the enemy. And one of the ways that God has deemed it fit to create stable churches that last is by appointing qualified elders. Uh, and today, and into the next few weeks in Titus, we'll see a few more of these markers of what, it is, what is needed to establish a healthy and an enduring church that lasts. Uh, but in Titus 2, uh, we see Paul shift his focus towards the entire body of believers, for the older men and women, for the younger men and women, and also for those in the workplace. Uh, and so let's go ahead and read all of Titus 2, uh, and I'll give you a little bit more of a clear direction for our time today and, and into next week after, after that. So... Follow along with me, me, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so that's where we're going to be camping out for the next couple of weeks. And as I pointed out, Paul here, he shifts to different groups of people in the church. Uh, But before we jump into more of the specifics of Titus 2, I want to take about 15 minutes and tackle this overarching theme of discipleship because it's something that's talked uh, talked about a lot in churches, and it's an important topic. Jesus' last imparting words as he finished his time on earth, Jesus told his followers, his disciples, to go and make disciples. And so we know this is an important topic. 
If that's the last thing that Jesus said, we know it's a big deal. Because maybe you've heard this, parting words are lasting words. And so because of that, here at New City Church, we are committed to the process of discipleship. You know, and I say often, uh, we're here to make disciples, multiply churches, and mobilize missionaries. And if we as a church can do a few things well, discipleship will be one of those few things that we would be wholeheartedly and adamantly committed to. Uh, and maybe you're thinking, that's great. That sounds great, Eric, Pastor Eric. But I didn't actually see the word discipleship mentioned anywhere in Titus 2. And yes, you're right about that, <laughs> because it's not. But although it's not mentioned, the picture we see in Titus 2 is a great model for what it looks like. And so that's what we're going to talk about today and into next week. Uh, and just to give you a simple definition for us, for discipleship, it's this. Discipleship is the process of becoming a follower of Jesus. That's it. It's in discipleship, we're learning how to follow Jesus as the Lord of our life. We're learning to obey him and to love him and to, and to know more, more about him. And in the process, God changes us. You know, I, I think of a, a, a few other terms and phrases that we hear often in our world. Uh, these may also be helpful uh, in how we think about this. Uh, the idea of discipleship, like, like maybe, maybe you think of mentoring. Or maybe, maybe the concept of apprenticeship. Or, or maybe something like coaching. And maybe what comes to mind for you uh, when we talk about mentoring is something like the relationship with Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. Uh, or maybe uh, Yoda and Luke Skywalker. Or maybe, some, maybe, maybe you think of somebody like uh, Coach Dean Smith mentoring the great Michael Jordan. Uh, or maybe you think about work where you've shadowed or had someone teach and train you in a job. I know one of my first real jobs uh, was at Autobell Car Wash. <laughs> and it, uh, it, and I, was, I had it drilled into my head, when you wipe down a window, you always box the window and then you fill it in. You don't do any of this sporadic mess. Like, you just don't do that. Uh, you also, you never miss the door jams. Like, you got to clean those bad boys out. And you always work clockwise. And because of that, I've washed cars the same way for the past 20 years because how, how I was trained at Autobell. And the same thing, of a moving, I worked for a moving company in college. There's a right and there's a wrong way to pack a truck. We see the same thing in sports with investing and finances and also in school and in parenting. Things are to be done a certain way and there's teaching and there's, there's a modeling element to mentorship that trains us in a specific way. And what we all, what we all I think, know is that some of the best mentors don't just teach a skill a way of doing something, but they also model and teach character. And so when we become a disciple of Jesus, we're in essence learning how to follow him. We're learning his ways of life and his teaching, seeking to mimic his character. And when we disciple other people in the faith, we're in essence teaching them and modeling for them what that looks like. A disciple of Jesus follows Jesus. And when we disciple someone else, we're teaching them what it looks like to follow Jesus. We're giving them a picture and a model to follow. And as we talk about being a church that lasts, the next significant marker we see Paul show, up, show Titus is the concept of discipleship. It's mentoring. It's investing in the next generation. It's people teaching and instructing and modeling and pouring their life into those that are younger in the faith. But what I want to emphasize here is that, yes, discipleship certainly has a one-on-one -on -one component. 
There's certainly a place for that. But what I also don't want us to miss is it is also a community-wide effort. Maybe we could say it this way. Discipleship is a community project. It's a church-wide effort. Every person has strengths and weaknesses, and we all have limitations. And we're learning and picking up on things on how to follow Jesus by multiple different people in our lives. And when we look at our text, we see that Paul addresses multiple people. He addresses the entire community. Men, women, younger men, younger women. He covers the whole spectrum of the church, which leads us to our main idea uh, that we'll use for both this week and also into next week as we look at, continue to look at Titus chapter 2. And it's this, intentional discipleship happens in community. So this week is kind of part one, and next week will be part two. Uh, we'll have the same main point and outline for this week and next week with just two different focuses. Uh, and I'll give you the outline in a few minutes, but I want to continue this conversation uh, on discipleship, kind of uh, building on this main idea that I just gave you. Because I say, I say intentional discipleship uh, as in our main idea purposefully because this is a major part of the DNA of our church. It's one of our, it's, it's one of our three core values. I mean, let's be honest here. We're, we're not a super flashy church. We don't have all the bells and whistles. We don't have tons of programs. I'm not a super funny, charismatic preacher. We're a small church that meets in an elementary school cafeteria. I mean, this is just who we are. And with that comes a lot of things I know that we don't have. And I also know we have a lot of room to grow in a lot of areas. But what I do hope you find among us and our, our core values truly lived out that we value, as we say often, authentic relationships, that we, you, we truly value you and we care for you. We want you to know that you're loved and valued here. I pray that we would have a level of honest vulnerability here. And then also what we'll talk about more today and in the next week is that, in, is that we value intentional discipleship. And just to finish off these three core values, uh, thirdly, we value missional urgency. You know, we as a church, we want to do whatever it takes to reach the lost around us here in Tampa and around the world. And I bring up these three core values today because two of the three are essential in what, we, what we'll see today. Because in order for what we'll see in our text today to become a reality, we need to truly care for people with authentic relationships and to show intentionality in discipleship. And we hope that be, by being a part of our church that you'd find these values truly lived out. Not just by sitting in here on a Sunday service, but by being plugged into our city groups and our smaller discipleship groups and, and interacting with our serve teams. Because we don't just say we care for you as lip service, but part of our way of caring for you is wanting to see each of us grow and be built up in the Lord. To be intentionally discipled and to grow up into maturity in Christ. And if you have no clue what it means to be discipled or what, it, what that looks like to disciple someone, well... I'm glad you're here because today we get a picture of what this looks like. Because again, the discipleship is a major part of our DNA, which as we'll see today into next week, most of what we see in Titus 2 is picked up in common everyday life, like at the ball field and around the dinner table and at carpool and in the chaos of just our ordinary life. Yes, we have a process and a structure that we think is helpful, but I also know about half of discipleship doesn't fit into a nice little box or curriculum because humans are complex and relational beings and every person has different needs and are at different stages in their life and in their journey with the Lord. And so we have to understand that a cooker-cutty mentality to discipleship, it won't always work 
Guardrails and processes, yes, they're certainly helpful, and we have those, and we want to use those, and we do use those. Bible studies and curriculums and books are all good and right, and we use those as well. But what we need to wrestle with is that intentional discipleship with complex people takes other complex people in our everyday life to see that happen. And yes, what happens here on a Sunday morning is certainly one form of discipleship. It's a major part of discipleship, and we need it, uh, and we need, we need it in each of our lives. But I also am very aware that every sermon, every Sunday, won't speak into everybody's specific life situations. And so that's where city groups and life-on-life discipleship must come into play. I mean, last week, we talked about the role of elders, and the responsibility that they play in the church, in the life of the church. But as we'll see today and in the next week, there are more layers that are needed to get into the nooks and the crannies of our hearts and lives, to see true life transformation happen. I mean, it takes an entire community of people to disciple every individual person. And again, there is certainly a place for one-on-one discipleship and mentoring. And we want to see that here at New City Church. And I know it's happening But I would argue one-on-one discipleship, just sitting down in a coffee shop by itself, is insufficient. I mean, just like only sitting in a service on Sundays is also insufficient. I would would actually argue that one-on-one discipleship relationships are are better suited just spending time together in our everyday mundane life, just kind of tagging along at the grocery store or while folding laundry or taking the kids to the park. I mean, one-on-one relationships are kind of more counseling-focused. It's more helpful to be counseling-focused focus and imparting knowledge, I think. You know, I know for myself, I've probably benefited more from one-on-three or one-on-four discipleship relationships that sits down in the the coffee shop or at the dinner table and studies the Bible more than one-on-one because being able to listen into other people speak into other life situations that I wasn't going through and asking questions about the Bible, uh, just being a part of that and just observing it, And uh, and just as a fly on the wall has proved to be helpful for me personally when something similar came up in my life later down the road, which is why we have these smaller discipleship groups in every city group that consists of three to five people, because we need people asking us hard questions and holding us accountable and speaking directly into our life. And all that to say, yes, city groups and these smaller discipleship groups are a major part of how we make disciples. But in all reality, being discipled here involves everything we do, including our Sunday morning service and serving and serve week and D groups and city groups and our night of prayer and worship and our evangelism and our outreach efforts. They're all part of discipleship because they each teach and model different things and in different ways. And so again, yes, we have an organized way to make disciples that helps and assists the process of discipleship in various ways. But we have to be honest about our organized system Our system and organized processes and regular rhythms we've put into place on Sundays and throughout the week, they help us to make disciples, but they can only go as far as the people inside of it are willing to take it. Because y'all, systems don't make disciples. People make disciples. And so let's just ask the question, what does it look like for the community of people at New City Church to intentionally make disciples? And yes, joining a city group and being in a D group is the first step, but that's just a system. But what we need to wrestle with are what are, the, are we the people to do inside of these groups? Well, I'm glad you asked <laughs> uh, because Titus 2 will help us with this. 
And so here's both the question, the answer, and also our outline for today and also for next week. And it says, how do we intentionally disciple others? Well, number one, we teach the word, and number two, we model the word. It's that simple. We need a Bible and obedience in our life and in their life to actually live it out. We need both. We teach the Bible, and we also model what it looks like in a relationship with them. And it's not just from one person. It comes from an entire community of people. I mean, Titus 1 showed us last week, elders are to be an example to follow in how they teach and in how they live. But then as we see in a second, there are more layers to this. And over the next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to hit these two ideas of teaching and modeling the word and dive into the extra layers of what it looks like more specifically for both men and women to model the character of a life that follows Jesus. And as we'll see, Paul gives Titus varying instructions and exhortations to each group. Because, well, unless you live under a rock, I think it's fair to say that men and women are very different, (laughs) with very different needs and struggles. There are certainly a lot of overlap and similarities but uh, just to, that I, we need to acknowledge, but uh, that men and women, old and young, we all have different struggles at different stages in life. Uh, but that said, there's, there's one thing that is essential in discipleship for every group and every stage of life, and we see it in Titus 2, verse 1. Paul tells Titus directly, verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Seeing right off the bat, that there is a teaching element in discipleship that we can't miss and ignore. Paul is telling Titus to teach the word correctly. Doctrine, that's just a fancy word for a set of beliefs. And so teaching sound doctrine is correct doctrine. It's healthy. It's untroubled. It's undisturbed. Uh, It's teaching without error. Similar to a baby, maybe you've heard this, that is sound asleep. When a baby is sound asleep, it's in a good place. It's untroubled. It's undisturbed. And so what do you do? Nothing. (laughs) You don't mess with it. The baby is in a good place, and so you let the baby sleep. And so teaching sound doctrine is saying we're teaching what is right and correct, showing the false contrast uh, to the false teachers that we saw last week in chapter 1. Titus's charge in teaching was to teach the right thing, to teach the Bible correctly. Which leads us to the first answer to our question. How do we intentionally disciple others? Number one, we teach the word. Paul shows us this because as we'll see, right living, and we see this often, right living flows out of right belief. What we believe drives how we live. This is a big driving theme in the book of Titus. And we all know, just as Paul knew, there are millions of things that we learn and are taught that don't kind of jive with the Bible which means a very key element to discipleship is knowing the word. It's being taught sound doctrine. Because every day, whether we realize it or not, we're being discipled by friends and coworkers and teachers and TV and social media and coaches and news anchors and journalists and classmates and bosses. And every day, we're learning things that don't accord with sound doctrine. And if we don't know the Bible and we don't know sound doctrine, we'll easily get swept away and confused by all the different jargon in our world because there is a lot of stuff that may look right, but is off. I mean, every day in our culture, by our culture, we're influenced in how we think about love and dating and marriage and money, and the list goes on and on. Again, teaching sound doctrine is a key element in discipleship. 
Because with our human sin nature, we have a bent and inclination to follow anything and everything but the way of Jesus. I mean, denying ourselves and following Jesus, it's just not a natural thing for us to do. And so we need to be taught God's word and entrenched in God's word so much so that living the way God has instructed in his word becomes more natural to us. And here at New City, one of the primary ways this happens for us every week is under the preaching and teaching of God's word. And we spend 40 minutes diving headfirst directly into the Bible every week. I mean, I spend 20 to 25 hours every week studying and preparing and working to get the text right so that our church can sit under sound teaching week in and week out. And I also know our teaching, it doesn't stop there. I mean, every week in our city groups, we get into the Bible, we read it, discuss it, ask questions, so the teaching of God's Word can continue in a more intimate way. And then also in more informal ways, like meeting in a coffee shop or at a restaurant or across the dinner table just to, just to read and study the Bible in smaller, maybe one-on-one or one-on-two groups that we don't plan from a staff level here at our church. You know, I know everyone's not in a one-on-one discipleship relationship, but everybody at New City hopefully has the ability to be in a small uh, discipleship group with three to five people. And in all of these arenas, the teaching of God's Word is an essential part of discipleship that must be included. And you may be asking, well, well, how do I know if I should be teaching the Bible? Uh, like any of like any of us, like how should how should we know if we should be teaching the Bible? And that's a great question. And all and I'll say this: every Christian is called to make disciples. Every Christian. If you're a Christian, you're called to make disciples. And so if you're a Christian, God has called you to teach others about Jesus, and that involves teaching the Bible. And so who do you teach the Bible to? And how I would answer that is whoever you're one step ahead of. It doesn't mean you know all the answers. It just means you open the Bible and read it and seek to understand it with other people around you. And hopefully the larger setting of our church can kind of help steer and direct that. I mean, our small discipleship groups are an excellent training ground to learn how to teach the Bible. In fact, they're designed with that purpose in mind. We have a guide that we can give give with with questions on a piece of paper that you can sit down with and ask uh, three to ten questions about any passage in the Bible. Every person that is involved in a discipleship group here at New City, hopefully, is being trained to teach the Bible in a very small group with maybe two to three people. And so, yes, teaching the Bible is essential to making disciples. But I do want to be clear It does not stop with teaching. Discipleship is not the transfer of Bible knowledge. Again, it's teaching the word. Discipleship is teaching the word and also modeling the word. And we'll get uh, to modeling the word in a minute, but uh, to kind of bridge these two points together, these two points that we have, I want to share something that's been really helpful for me as I've thought about just discipleship in general. And it's the paradigm that discipleship engages our head, our heart, and our hands. We have to know what's right with our heads, which is why sound teaching is so important. We also need to engage our hearts and our hands. Like God God calls us to do things with our hands, so to speak. I mean, we serve, we live on mission, we share our faith, we obey the commands of Scripture. Like we're called to do things. If we don't engage our hands in discipleship, Uh, then we'll be really smart and maybe emotionally healthy, but we'll miss an entire part of life that Jesus calls us to engage and to do. 
These are the things that just can't happen while sitting in a coffee shop. But then also, I know that we're emotional beings. God speaks a lot, often about our hearts and souls. And true discipleship, it engages our hearts. Because if we don't engage our hearts in discipleship and only engage our minds and our hands, we'll be really smart, Michelin-minded Christians, yet possibly maybe hard-hearted and maybe indifferent. Because here's the deal. Our affections are so easily distracted, and they so easily get off kilter and are drawn to things that are not in line with the character of God. And if we don't pay attention to these things, our emotions and our affections will end up following them more closely maybe than we follow Jesus, which is why we spend so much time in our discipleship groups every week just sharing our struggles in our hearts and what we need prayer for and being vulnerable and hopefully open and honest about where we are. Because the struggles in our life, full of all of our emotions, like we can easily, uh, these, our emotions can easily speak way louder to us and can influence and affect us way more than Jesus affects us. And our emotions, whether we admit it or not, can easily have more effect on our everyday life than anything else. And so we must engage our affections and see where they stand and speak the truth of God's word to them. We need solid, sound Bible teaching that speaks into every corner of our life. And all that to say, how do we disciple others? We teach God's word in all areas of our life. But then notice how Paul shifts gears from sound teaching and moves into different categories of people, showing what to teach and what to model. Look at, look at verse 2. Older men, this is what it says in, in Titus 2.2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And then Paul, in verses 3 to 5, uh, goes into addressing the women and charges the older women and the younger women, which we'll, which we'll hit on next week. And then Paul uh, says, down in verses 6 through 8, that look what it says. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Which leads us to the second answer to our question. How do we intentionally disciple others? Well, uh, we teach the word. And number two, we model the word. We model the word. Paul said in verse 7, to be a model of good works. And then his teaching, to show integrity, dignity and sound speech. Modeling the word, it is still a form of teaching, but it's teaching by showing. It's teaching with the way that we live our life, by seeing, uh, by seeing it lived out, which again, it can't happen in a classroom setting or a coffee shop setting. I think we get this. I mean, we see this in training for sports, right? I, I can describe to you the Kareem hook all day long, but until you see it on tape, you won't fully understand the beauty of this hook shot. This is the same thing uh, with seeing a football play in a playbook versus seeing it on film. It starts to really click when you see it on video. The same thing is true in the Christian life. We can teach about the list of character qualities that we just read about in a formal classroom setting or in a setting like this, but at the same time, these things that are more, these are more easily caught than taught. Maybe you've heard that before. As we'll see, as we'll talk about them today, uh, but until you see someone else live these out in their home or around the dinner table or at work or just in everyday life, uh, these will just be another thing of a list of things we talk about and aspire to. 
And so we need to model these for each other. But that, let's, say, let's look at our list um, designated specifically to older men in, from verse 2. So all the men in the room listed up, okay? And women, you listen up too. But here's just another list for what to look for in men, how to pray for the men of our church, and also uh, you too aspire to these as well. And the first thing I want to address from verse 2 and also from verse 6 is kind of the elephant in the room. Like, what constitutes an older man and a younger man? Like, what's the age for this? Uh, well, I'm not going to fall into that trap because there is no age. And here at, Su- at, at New City, let's just be honest, uh, we're a pretty young church. Maybe it's fair to say if you're over the age of 30, you're in the old man bracket. <laughs> uh, but I would say, I would also say that every guy in college, right out of college, even high school, these things are for you to check yourself against as well. Aspire to these things, each of us. But at the very least, as we'll see, every male in this room has at least one charge given to them, and we'll get to that. But Paul first tells Titus that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. And so there are a few similarities here to the other list in Titus 2. Every group in this list is called to be self-controlled. Both the older men and the younger women are warned against indulgences of alcohol. Both older men and women are called to be dignified and reverent, the idea of being respectful. I do want to say it doesn't mean we don't have fun. It doesn't mean we never laugh. It just means don't be vulgar or rude or inappropriate or shady or questionable. Like, don't be sketchy. I mean, listen, one of the things Paul hits on throughout this book is that our public life and our private home life, they need to go hand in hand. Because our true character shows when we're alone, by ourselves, behind closed doors, or out with some of our closest friends. And, and our, so we have to ask, are we respectful, dignified, self, and self-controlled? Are we sober-minded? Are we unwavering in our faith? Do we love and serve others? These are really for all of us. But men, Paul has instructed these in Titus 2 as specific things for us to take note of in all stages of life. But the one on the list that I want to point out that Paul targets more specifically to older men is the idea of being steadfast. It's the idea of modeling steadfastness, which also means to endure. And yes, women are called to this too. But what commentators point out is that men who are older, once they've lived most of their life, have a tendency to just coast. And we see this today as well. The world tells us men we need to live our life making as much money as possible so that the last third of our life we can coast, be free, and just play golf and do whatever we want. And there's nothing wrong with, with any of these things. But Paul charges the older men to be a steadfast presence in the life of the church. I know Paul doesn't give an age here, but what is commonly understood with steadfastness is the need for endurance. The idea of endurance is being able to endure to the end, to remain faithful till the end, all the way to the end of our life. We, need, we all need people around us to model and show what it looks like to endure hardship, to withstand trials, to not give up, to be unwavering in our commitments, to show a sense of stability and long-suffering that when, that when disappointments come our way, that our hope is not found in our circumstances or in people or in jobs or in our bank account, but that our hope and security are found in Jesus alone. We need the men 
of New City Church as charged in Titus 2 to be a model of what this looks like, to be a steadfast, unwavering, and being able to endure, to endure hardships in our marriages, hardships with our kids, hardships at work, with our finances, with our friends, and with others around us. Y'all, if God has taught me a lot in the past two years. But if there is one thing that I am dead set on of what God has called me to be as a man, as a husband, as a dad, as a pastor, and as a friend, is that God has called me to be a steadfast and unwavering presence in the life of those around me. And y'all, I don't want this just for myself. I want this for every man and woman in our church. And men, today, God's word in Titus 2 has this targeted directly at us. We are to remain steadfast and we endure. And when things get tough and don't go our way, we endure. Both men and women, endure. Be steadfast. <laughs> you know, I was talking about this uh, in our sermon planning meeting this week. When we go through the sermon uh, before I preach it, on, typically on Wednesdays, it's really helpful. And, and AJ brought up an illustration about this idea of steadfastness that he had heard in a sermon from another pastor. Uh, and as soon as he said it, before he even told it to me, I knew exactly what he was talking about, but not because I heard it in a sermon, uh, but rather because I saw it in a bison jerky ad. <laughs> and y'all, ever since, I've had a special endearment for the buffalo bison. And all that to say, what this buffalo bison ad mentioned was how bison withstand a storm. And what do they do? They face the storm directly. They remain steadfast and go directly through it. They go into the storm, not away from it. And they don't drift with the storm. Because the fastest way to get through a storm is to go directly through the storm and to face it head on. Where in contrast, you know how cows manage a storm? They follow the storm. And they drift uh, as it drifts. Where the storm and the wind blows, they just kind of move along with it. They go with it, which keeps them in the storm longer. <laughs> so for us today, both men and women, don't be a cow. Be a steadfast buffalo bison as we engage the storms of life. When there is a temptation to get swept away by the storm, New City Church, no, we don't drift and wallow. We step up. We remain steadfast and lead through the storm with an unwavering courage. New City, New City Church, New City Men, this is our standard. This is what God has called us to in Titus 2. Older men, model this. We need this. Women, pray this for our men. And also pray this for yourself. We all need this. But let's keep moving in, in the, here in verse 6, where Paul has one charge for the younger men. Paul says in verse 6, right after he gives instructions for what the older women are to teach the young women, which are about seven things, and we'll get to that uh, next week, Paul says in verse 6, this is what he says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's it. He said, be self-controlled. That's the one thing Paul said for the younger men. And not just tell them, but urge them. And may we not forget that women and the older men are to also be self-controlled. That's what we see in Titus 2 as well. And to model this. But as we saw in verse 6, we need to urge the younger men, to be self-controlled. When we talk about discipleship, we must teach and model self-control. It is urged here for the younger men. Every person here today, hear that. Be self-controlled. But more specifically, younger men, you're urged to be self-controlled. 
Practice self-control in every area of your life, with your mind, with your thoughts, with your eyes, with the way you speak, with arguing, with questioning, with your anger, with all of your emotions, with your indulgences, with what you eat and with what you drink, with your wife and your friends and dating and in relationships and in parenting, with what you say yes and no to. Men, be self-controlled. You know, it's often talked about in relation to purity and sex and pornography, which absolutely needs to be included in that. If we fail to talk about this, we are deeply underserving our people. But the conversation needs to start way before that in all areas of life. And y'all, because of this exact text, for the past six years of my son's life, outside of his own salvation, I pray that he would be self-controlled, maybe more than anything else. I remind him all the time, multiple times a day, buddy, self-control. Practice self-control. Buddy, we need self-control. And I, and I know that I can't just tell him these things. He needs to see it modeled. He needs to learn how to do it by actually seeing it. Because everything in our flesh tells us to do the exact opposite of what we should be doing. Moms and dads, teach and model self-control to your sons and daughters. Older men, model self-control to our younger men. Every guy in this church, in the church of all ages, urge the guys that are younger than you to be self-controlled. High school, middle school, college, young professionals, young married, uh, married, retired, men of all ages. Every man that is younger than you, urge them towards self-control. Because again, this is a community project. From everything we looked at last week with elders, what I would argue is the single most disqualifying thing that disqualifies pastors most often from ministry is a lack of self-control. It not only can hurt a man's, man's ministry, but it will also hurt his marriage. It will also greatly affect his soul. J.C. Ryle said just that. He said, being ruled by the desires of your body will murder your soul. New City. I urge us all, practice self-control in every area of our life. And so just as a practical application for us today, older men of New City, our younger men need you in their life. Older women, the younger women need you in their life. They need a model to follow. You know, when I was in college, and right out of college and into seminary, one of the most influential things in my life was twice a month, getting up early on a Saturday morning and just cycling with a man that was 30 years older than me. It was just me and him. And he'd always ask me every time, hey, how's your bride? Are you caring for her? And then he'd ask, uh, what's going on in your life? And we'd just talk about it, talk through it. I haven't always had this at every, at every stage, uh, but they come and go in different ways. But I pray that we can have at least something like that here. And I know it's happening in different ways. I mean, every person in the room today, let me ask the question, who have you taken under your wing? Or who will you take under your wing to teach the word and to model the word? We all need someone pouring into us and we all need to be pouring into others. And so who are those people for you here at New City? And hopefully our city groups and discipleship groups can help foster this. But then just lastly for, for us today, in the last four to five minutes of our time, what I know in all of this is what Paul knows with everything we've just said. And it's that we can't do this without the grace of God that is found in the gospel. If we try to do this in our own strength, it will prove to be too hard. Y'all, we need God's power to transform us, to grow us in each of these areas. 
something that Pastor J.D. Greer said about this passage several years ago and has always stuck with me in regards to self-control and purity specifically. And it's that every time your mind wanders or every time you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't, instead of fixing your eyes and mind on a sinful image, rather fix your eyes upon the bloody cross where Jesus was nailed and whipped and scorned and beaten and bruised because of our sin that put him there. And in line with that, as soon as we, also, as we saw in our passage, when we're tempted to give up or to throw in the towel because of trials and want to co- maybe coast through life and lose our call to steadfastness, may we remember how Jesus Christ remains steadfast through the trial of the cross. New City Church, the bad news of the gospel is that we have a sinful flesh that pulls us away to what God has called us to do, which is to be sober-minded and dignified and sound in faith and love, steadfastness and in self-control. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus modeled all of that for us. Jesus did what we couldn't do, and then he went to die on the cross to give us what we could not earn. And on the cross, he remained steadfast. And not only died on the cross, but he defeated sin and death and rose from the grave. And then he infused those who trust in him to believe in him, like us, his people. He infuses us with power from on high, and he has gifted us with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he has made us new creations. And because of that, he empowers us to do what he has called us to do. But may we remember it is all because of grace which is what Paul tells us in Titus 2, starting in verse 11, that says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. New City Church, the grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation to all who believe in him. If you have not trusted in Jesus today, I want to plead with you, trust in him today. There is a radical, scandalous, transforming grace available for for you that you and I, we do not deserve. And because of God's love for us, he sent Jesus Christ as an offering of hope to bring salvation, as it says, to each of us who believe in him. Because here's the deal. We can't cleanse ourselves. We can't make ourselves pure. Only Jesus can do that. And so, yes, Jesus saves us for eternal life. But as he tells us in verse 12, he also trains us for godliness. He empowers us to be self-controlled. Christian, hear that today. You absolutely have everything you need within you to live the way God has called you to live. No, it, it won't be complete perfection. That won't happen until we see Jesus face to face. But until then, we can trust, as his word tells us, that God has given us the power and he's also giving us, given us the ongoing supply of grace that we need to live how he's called us to live. God doesn't save us and then leave us. No, he saves us and stays with us and he empowers us. This is the church. Discipleship is a community project infused with power and grace. And because of that, we teach the word with power and grace. We model the word with power 
and grace. And listen, we can't forget in all of our teaching and modeling and discipleship is Jesus Christ. It's the transforming power and transforming grace found in Jesus. We need, when we teach the word, we point people to Jesus. When we model the word, we're pointing people to Jesus. And in the process, as a community, we're doing what God calls us to do, which is to make disciples. New City Church, may we be a church that is zealous for discipleship, that points people to Jesus. Let's pray. God, you're good in all that you do. God, you're good in putting people around us that love us, that pour into us, so that we can then turn around and pour into others. Father, may New City Church be a community of people that love one another, that serve one another, that model and teach uh, what is good in your word. Father, would we point each other to Jesus? We're so thankful for what you've done for us at the cross. We ask this all in Jesus' name.